uh, don't get me wrong. It was great working at the firm I worked at. It was it was phenomenal. I learned a lot. The experience was great, and I absolutely loved it. But uh, got to a point where you know I just uh, I needed some more flexibility. Had a child. Um, I wanted to be closer to home. So there was multiple factors that led to the ultimate decision. Picture a world where costs are down, profits are up, and customers are clamoring at your door. You're listening to Let's Get Up to Business from Jordan Law. Our interviews with business owners, service providers, and area experts can teach you how to create a world of success and profitability. If you're looking for an attorney to assist in your business formation, employment agreements, or other legal business needs, contact Jordan Law at 407-906-5529. You can also reach us on the web at jordanlawfl.com. Jordan Law, we protect you and your business. Hello and welcome to Let's Get Up to Business with Jordan Law. Joining me today is Yazin Abdin with Abdin, Abdin Law PLLC. Yes, sir. And in a nutshell, tell me a little bit more about Abdin Law. So Abdin Law is a fairly new firm and it is focused exclusively on immigration matters. All right. So for the purpose of this podcast, we're going to be mostly talking about business owners using different immigration visas and the business immigration visas and stuff to begin with but you will handle all sorts of immigration matters? Yeah, so we handle the family-based stuff, the business stuff, as well as the humanitarian uh, aspects of immigration. Okay, so somebody listening to the podcast, they know they need some immigration help, they've got some questions, they've got employees who are going through the process. What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Uh, Email or telephone, so our office number is 407-710-0101, and uh, email. We also have the website. What's your email? Email is yaz at abdinlaw.com. All right. And can you spell that for everybody just because? Yeah. Yaz, Y-A-Z. Yeah. At abdin, A-B-D-I-N, law, L-A-W.com. All right. And I'm assuming abdinlaw.com is the website. It is, yeah. Okay. So before we get into this, tell us a little bit more about you. How did you come to be an attorney and come to run Abdin Law? <laughs> so uh, probably had to do with my mom. My mom wanted to be an attorney. She never got to pursue it because she uh, ended up having me. And so I think all along growing up, she kind of kept pushing me towards that. And so eventually it just happened. Yeah, I went to law school. So you destroyed her dreams and then had to live them for her? Yes, pretty much. Wow. Props to Yaz's mom. (laughs) What a sacrifice. All right. And then so that that gets you to law school. Now walk me through the process of... How does lawyer Yazan Abdin come to run Abdin Law? Yeah, so uh, graduated law school, uh, started off doing some real estate because that was the first job I could find. So I did some real estate law for a few months. And finally, I found an opening in the immigration world. Um, I worked at a, a larger Central Florida firm, became partner there, and then ultimately left to open up my own firm. Uh, kind of similar. I, fo- I followed somewhat in my mentor's footsteps, Jordan Ostroff. Yeah, right. <laughs> I teach people what not to do. I so walk I, that path. I learned from you, you see? No, but you follow – like I left a large firm to that's then true. open up my firm. And it worked out okay for you. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right. Um, Man, now you threw me off. So <laughs> – 
walk me through, you know, how do you decide to make that jump? I mean, like for me, I was at a government job. I was capped yeah. out at, you know, like $49,000 sending people to prison for life. Like for me, it was very much a financial decision of yeah. I wanted to be able to afford my family, you know, <laughs> afford my family, which you can on 49000 but it's, you know, that's a scratch. So for you, you know, your partner at this big fancy firm in downtown Orlando puts on some big parties, etc. You know, walk me through how do you make that decision to be like, all right, it's time to go. Yeah, uh, don't get me wrong. It was great working at the firm I worked at. It was it was phenomenal. I learned a lot. The experience was great, and I absolutely loved it. But uh, got to a point where, you know, I just I needed some more flexibility. Had a child. Um, I wanted to be closer to home. So there was multiple factors that led to the ultimate decision of going out on my own and opening up a practice nearby my my house. All right. For any of our listeners who are potentially thinking about jumping ship or opening up a second business or a side business, um, any advice? You know, you're you're in that beginning stage. Yeah, do it. Just do it. It's. It, I know it's not that easy. Uh, there's a lot of things that might make you not want to. Uh, a lot of us get comfortable. We get to, we become dependent on the salary we're earning. Um, so I, I get why someone would not want to go out on their own because there's a lot of risk involved. But I think the reward outweighs the risk greatly, and I think you would agree with that. And that's what ultimately leads people to do it. Well, so in total honesty, I, I don't – I personally agree with you, but I think there's a lot of people that just tell people blindly to do it like you just did, no offense. And for me, I don't think that's the necessarily the right advice because I don't think this is for everybody. Like if – if that entrepreneurial spirit, that hustle, that grind was for everybody, we wouldn't stand out as much. Well, I was under the impression. So I was assuming the person had that. Okay. All right. Got because it. Because if yes. you don't have that, then there's no need to go out on your own. Just be an employee somewhere. Yeah. But if you have that entrepreneurial spirit and you, you're considering doing it, but you're just being held back by your own uh, fears, don't let your fears hold you back is what I'm saying. Right. If, oh, if definitely. You, if definitely. you want to be on your own and that's your dream, that's your vision, do it. Don't let fear and the comfort of a salary prevent you from pursuing your dream. Right. So I always tell people, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I don't know if you've read it. I have not, no. So Rich Dad, Poor Dad, in a nutshell, we're getting off topic, but it's it's somehow relevant. So basically, um, this guy who writes the book, his dad is the poor dad. His dad, I think, was a teacher or worked in, in education. And so what he talks about is like every time they got a raise – they would raise their level of income. Like, okay, my dad, you know, my dad got promoted. He got a $3,000 raise. We bought a nicer car. And he talks about, like, that's the problem that people get stuck in where they're never going to get ahead because they're they're living to their means. And so the rich dad was actually his, his neighbor or his friend's dad who had a dry cleaner and a grocery store and all these other businesses who had this unlimited growth potential who was, you know, saving money to open up the next venture to get the next asset, et cetera. So for those of you out there that don't feel – that can't make the jump, don't want to make the jump, don't think the jump is right for them, that, but need to make more money, then you know cut back, live uh, frugally for a bit, and then try to figure out where you can invest some of that money either in you know the stock market or somebody else's business. You know That's the opportunity for you to have the growth and kind of have maybe the best of both worlds. But I'm definitely with you. You know, we're Yaz and I are in similar boats. You know, we've got kids, we've got wives who are wonderful, um, and it, the flexibility of having your own practice a lot of times makes it easier because you can hang out with your kid on those days where you're not stuck in court all the time, or you know, you have to knock out some work on a Saturday. You can go in early on or go in late on that Tuesday. You know, to make up some family time. So, yeah. um, all right. So now that we've got that wonderful, you know, kumbaya, hug it, huggy. Uh, 
we're all in this together spirit out of here. Let's get into the, the nuts and bolts and nitty gritty here. So let's say I'm a business owner and let's start with the immigration visa aspect of it. And then let's move into the business owner utilizing, you know, an immigrant labor force. Is that fair terminology? Yeah. Okay. So when it comes to somebody immigrating here for the purpose of opening a business, investing in businesses, et cetera, what are we talking about? So I think first you got to take a step back and, and kind of just take a look at immigration law and what options it gives you. And so uh, generally immigration law can be broken down in three categories, the humanitarian category, the family-based category, and then the business employment category. So for that business employment category, um, oftentimes we, we get sought out by the employee or the prospective employee. Um, however, that's oftentimes not helpful because if they don't have a job lined up yet, uh, we can't do much for them. So it's much better when we get approached by the employer looking to hire an employee because technically in those situations we would be representing the employer, the U.S. petitioning company, and uh, the prospective employee would be the beneficiary of that petition. And so usually one or the other reaches out to us and then that's kind of where the process starts. All right, so then I was gonna go the other way, but then let's go that way. So basically you've got an employer who comes to you that says, I've got this employee that I need for my business, but they've got immigration issues. Mm -hmm. So what are the, is that apply to any industry? Is that certain industries? Like what's the standard for that to be applicable? Because I'm assuming I can't be like, hey, you know, I want a bilingual receptionist, so let me import this person from. Yeah, so language is not enough alone. Okay. Uh, you have to have, uh, you have to be able to demonstrate other criteria. You have to show that there is a, a lack of such employees in the U.S. So basically, let's, let's look at, uh, let's do the, EB2, for example, labor certification process. So in a case like that, you want to, Jordan Law wants to hire somebody from abroad for a very specific reason. Typically, uh, the, the better categories are the STEM categories, science, technology, math, engineering. Those tend to work best for immigration um, because we do want to bring those types of employees to the U.S. And so the first part would be advertising. Jordan Law would need to advertise for that position here in the U.S. and actually interview people. And then you would need to show that none of those people qualify for the position, which is why you have to look outside the U.S. So do I need, like, do I need to find that person in a foreign country who's working on, like, the next stage of the human genome process? Or can it just be, like, I'm looking for a scientist and I don't like any of the ones here? It's got to be more than you don't like them. You okay. have to show that they don't meet the requirements that you're looking for. So you, you, so one of the things we do as your attorney representing the business is we draft what this position entails. What are the requirements? What are the educational requirements? What are the experience requirements, et cetera, for this position that you want to create? And then you search for that person in the U.S., and when they're not available, you go elsewhere for it. But how – I mean, I guess this is a case-by-case -case decision that has to be – that you're arguing for, right? How so? Elaborate. Like there, it doesn't seem to me like there's very, there can't really be a hard and fast rule because then you could abuse the rule. Like it can't be, I need somebody with 21 years experience and I can only find people with 20 years experience. Like there's got to be some standard for, you know, exceptional, I, I don't know, what's the... Yeah, so there actually isn't. There's no, there's no real standard for what it takes to get, get an employee here in the sense that there is no like very specific requirements like this degree or this... It, it really, no, no, I get that part. But what I'm saying is, like, you need to show that this candidate immigrating here has 
exceptional skills you can't find is like there's not necessarily no... depends on the position that's that's open right so it's not necessarily skills that you can't find but maybe it's just uh it's hard it's hard to put it into words sometimes like, um, is there a burden like you like when they're hiring you to do this and you're arguing with uscis is that right yeah you're like hey this person meets the standard of whatever to be given this visa so yeah, we just, it's basically a multi-step process. So you just, the first step is just showing that there's no one here that can fill the position that you've created. Okay. And you create that position and the requirements for it. And then when you can't find somebody, you know, the next step is finding a foreigner to do the job. And then you have to do a labor certification. You have to show that it's in the national interest of the United okay, States. Okay, that's what I'm looking for. To bring that okay. person here. So, so you have to show two. in the national interest of the United States, that person needs to be here working for your company. Yeah, that they bring okay. benefit to the U.S. That's what I was looking for. I was yeah. looking for like that. That's step two. Okay, got it. And so you're going through, I mean, that, and at... At the end of the day, I mean, that's there's a hearing on you proving that? No, it's all paperwork. Immigration is, is highly transactional. Um, so the way it works is you submit your petitions to USCIS. If the person, the beneficiary, is already here, maybe on a visitor visa or a student visa or some other type of visa, then they might be able to uh, do a change of status or an adjustment of status internally. However, if your beneficiary is outside the U.S., because maybe they don't have a visa, um, then you would do the consular processing approach, which would entail the beneficiary going to the U.S. Embassy in the country that they live in and applying for the visa and uh, going through an interview process with a consular officer. Gotcha. Okay. And so that's going to, you said for the most part, that's going to be science, technology, engineering, math type positions. Yeah. So for like H-1B and those types of visas, they focus on the STEM categories. That seems to be what there is uh, a lack of here in the U.S. Okay. So it's, you know, this, per, it's in the, it's in the best interest of the nation for us to have more, you know, certain type of engineer or certain and type mathematicians of. Okay. And, yep. Um, so what about for other businesses that aren't STEM category? What are some ways for them to have to utilize immigrants in their labor force or get yeah. people over here? So there's other visas like the H-2B and things like that. They're for agricultural workers and stuff. So there's very specific types of visas for very specific things. So um, there are ways to come here even if you don't have a degree. Maybe you have a, a very specialized knowledge in something or something along those lines. Uh, also, there's the E2, for example, and that's for those who are entrepreneurs and want to open a business and so as we'll opposed get, to working for someone else. We'll get to the e E2s in a little bit. Um, so if you're not – basically, if you're not a STEM industry, your industry may have specific other visas that they can utilize. Yeah. All right. And can you walk us through like two or three different examples? Um, so you have, you have your EB1 category. That's a self-petition category. You have the EB-2 category, which we briefly discussed, and the EB-3. The EB-2 and the EB-3 are very similar uh, with those regards. Those are both immigrant categories, so they ultimately lead to residents, permanent residents in the U.S. And then you have non-immigrant alternatives, such as the H-1B, the H-2B, um, and several others. Honestly, we don't. My, my office doesn't handle the H-2Bs and a lot of those uh, non-immigrant employment visas. Uh, we outsource those elsewhere because they're very niche and very specific. And so we like to have someone who only works on those handle those types. But for those, the person's not going to get residency. They're going to finish that job and then have to go back? Or apply for residency afterwards Separately. through a different gotcha. yeah, path. 
So I know you talked about the H2Bs for agricultural. Um, just with, We don't have to go into too much detail, but are there any other like specific industries that have specific... Yeah, seasonal jobs such as ski resorts, right, uh, and uh, theme parks will require sometimes. So like Epcot, right, they have the, the different countries and things like that. So they will oftentimes bring people from Morocco or Egypt or whatever to run some of those uh, different countries. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so now I guess that's kind of the end of the employer hiring you to bring employees over here. Mm-hmm. That's And then the next one we're going to talk about is people coming over here to open up businesses. Yeah. All right. So let's transition to that. So talk to me about, you know, somebody's out there and they want to invest, you know, a bunch of money or open up a new business here. What are some of the requirements for them to be able to get a visa? Yeah. So this is my specialty. This is the area that I love. So I'm very passionate about this. So I'll be able to talk about this for days with you. So let's start with the easier. Well, we only have about a... No. <laughs> Um, so the E2 visa is a non-immigrant visa, and it's based on a treaty between the United States and different countries. Okay. So this visa is not available to everybody because your country of nationality must have a treaty with the U.S. for the E2. Uh, a lot of countries, most European countries, some Middle Eastern countries, a lot of countries have this treaty with the U.S. Um, each treaty is different, so it, the allotted time for the visa is going to be different depending on which country. Um, and the way this works, basically, the E-2 visa is for uh, treaty trader investors who want to come open up a business in the U.S. We've done this for car washes. We've done this with Twisty Treat. We've done this with pizza shops and Italian restaurants. So it's, it's doable with all types of businesses. There's no minimum required investment amount. You just have to show that you possess the requisite knowledge to operate a business. Do you have to be doing a new business or can you buy a pre-existing business? Either one for the E-2. Okay, but that's not going to get you residency status. Correct. It's just a visa and it has to be. it can be renewed indefinitely. So you can keep renewing it so long as you're operating that business and that business is doing well. And what's going to be the lowest amount of money you're going to be able to use to qualify, or at least that you've seen? I've seen it done with as low as $80,000. Okay. Um, the But what we're seeing is that the stronger the investment amount is, the more it seems like USCIS gives credibility to your business. Well, yeah, of course. And so, and obviously the more money you're investing into the economy, you know, is more appealing to the U.S., so it helps your case. And then does that business have to do well, or you just have to keep running it? Yeah, it has to do well in order to renew. Okay. Uh, you know, if it's a failing business, I, I don't know why USCIS would want to renew that. Oh, maybe you're dumping more <laughs> money in the country to you know keep it going. Yeah, I guess it would be on a case-by-case basis. You, op- you opened up a uh, frozen yogurt food truck, and you know nobody wants Froyo in, out of the back of a truck or something, and you just keep spending more and more money. Yeah, sounds like a bad business plan. I don't know. I've never I've never seen a Froyo truck. So maybe it's a good plan. Well, the way you describe it, the guy's dumping money into it and it's well, losing. I, I don't know. It sounds I mean, like a bad plan to me. Maybe it's just a shell corporation <laughs> to keep him here, you know? He doesn't care whether the business does well yeah. or, or her. Um, all right. So then uh, what other opportunities are there for investors, out-of-country investors to come in? Out-of-country investors to come in. You have the L-1 visa. Uh, the L-1 visa requires you to be an executive or manager at a business outside the U.S. Okay. And then basically your company outside the U.S. can open up a sister branch in the U.S. and transfer you as an executive or manager to the U.S. location to build it up. 
just like you did the outside location. So I imagine that a lot of that's going to be like banks or financial companies. And- L1, when Congress created it, it was intended for larger corporations, Hilton, Marriott, these, these companies that have branches all over the world, and they want to be able to move their executives around from one location to the other. And so that's what the L-1 visa is intended for. Immigration attorneys have gotten creative over the years, and we have used this visa for smaller businesses of 10 employees and whatnot. It is difficult when you do that, but it is possible. Okay. Um, and then what, you know, there's the one, it's like $500,000 investment. I think it yeah. just went up. What's that one? Yeah, that's the EB-5, the employment-based category five. Okay. So the EB-5 is actually my favorite. Um, the EB-5 was created in 1990. And it's been around since then. And basically, it's a real simple program. You invest half a million dollars, or it was half a million dollars, up until November 21st, uh, 2019. It went up to $900,000. So it almost doubled. You just missed the opportunity. We did this podcast too late. Well, uh, there's still people investing. Obviously, the number has decreased because not as many people have that kind of money. So it definitely reduces the numbers. But it's okay because we were backlogged in this category anyways because Congress has only allocated 10,000 visas a year for the EB-5 category. And since 2014, uh, we've started using more than 10,000. And so that's created a backlog. So I guess the goal of this is to remove some of the backlog. Uh, in theory, yeah. And also, the, just the, the fee, the $500,000 investment amount hasn't changed since 1990. And, con- and Congress and, and you know, government officials have been talking about raising it, raising it, raising it for several years, and they finally did. So that's going to be investing $900,000 in a new business, in an already existing business, in yeah. either one? So there's two ways to invest your money. You can invest it in a direct project, which would be your own business. Okay. Most people do not do this, though. Okay. Most people prefer the second option, which is investing your money into the regional center. A regional center is kind of misleading. It's not a center. It's not a location. It's not a physical place. It's just a license. So developers will apply for this regional center license designation, which will allow them to collect foreign investor money and use it to build these projects. And so let's say Jordan has a regional center license, going to develop a big Marriott hotel resort, and you need 100 foreign investors at 900000 apiece. And so you would go out and seek those investors and, and do the project for them. So, I mean, in essence, that regional center is really like a venture capitalist. They're, just, they're looking for investors for money to spend on... Yeah, the way I like to think of it is is bank money can be expensive, right? right? So this works out for the developer and for the beneficiary because the developer gets to borrow cheap money and they're going to pay the investor nominal interest. And uh, the investor, though, is not really doing this for the money. They're doing this for the green card for themselves and their family. Right. And so it's a win-win for everybody in that respect. And you have to put that towards building no, so or just the, happens to be developers that use a lot, a lot. Yeah, so the developers will use the money wherever they need to. Uh, okay. Usually, in, it's in constructing the project. But there's also a second requirement. So investing the money is just step one. There's step two, which is creating ten jobs per investor. So if you do the direct EB-5 investment where you do your own enterprise, you are responsible for creating those jobs. However, when you do which is this, the Twisty Treat model, like you talked about. Yeah. So Twisty Treat used to be the five hundred. 500000 to open up a thing, and then they'd manage it. And So Twisty Treat, we did more for the E2 visa, because with a Twisty Treat, it's hard to hire 10 full-time employees. It's hard okay. to justify 10 full-time employees for a Twisty Treat. Um, I don't you know. know, man. Depends on how busy they are. Yeah, that's true, but uh, yeah, 10 full-time employees, don't underestimate that, right? It's That's a lot. In an ice cream shop, you might need five, six full-time employees. 
10, unless it's a really busy location, maybe you can justify it. But I don't know, man. You ever go to Twisty Street? It's busy. Yeah. Usually two employees in there, two, three. Depends on what time. I have like gone, a, there's been like, like six or seven. Friday or Saturday, yeah. But then, yeah. you know, 40 hours a week. If you're open seven days a week for, you know, it's doable. 12 hours a day. It's doable. Anyway. Um, okay, so for the EB5, you've got to create 10 full-time jobs. Right. For how long do those jobs need to exist? So those jobs exist until you get the permanent green card, and then you as the investor at that time can sell your interest in the regional center and, and recoup your money. And so that may be a couple of years? Uh, so it's it's probably, probably closer to six or seven years before you can take oh, your money six out. or seven years. Yeah, because it's a okay. multi-step process. So first you apply for the conditional green card. They give you that based on just the investment. But then you have to prove over the course of two years that the 10 jobs were created. And then when you do that, they give you a permanent green card. So when you're doing, when you're investing in these build, um, in these builder things, the construction workers count, or it's really the employees of the hotel once it's over. That's a good question. That's actually a really cool question because if you do a direct project, then they have to be ten full-time employees. But if you do the regional center approach, they count what's called induced jobs. Jobs such as construction that are there temporarily, but they're going to be gone once the construction is over. Right. So it's not really a long-term full-time job, but you get to count those for the regional center. There is there is a calculation on what percentage that counts as an employee. Oh, so so forty construction workers may count as eight employees. Possibly. Or something. Right. Gotcha. Okay, so there's a whole thing. There's a whole yeah algorithm thing that they use. There we get we get economists involved in this, and they they have to do all these calculations and figure it out. It sounds like that's so much easier of a way to do it. Yeah, I'd say my guess is about 90% of investors go through the regional center approach right. and 10% do their own and because what it's is so it, much easier. What does it take to become a regional center? It's gotten much more complicated. Okay. Um, you have to file immigration forms with uh, USCIS. You have to submit a business plan, what your project is going to be. Uh, you need economic reports showing why this area uh, needs a boost in the economy, how you're going to create the jobs, how you're going to calculate the job creation. It's a whole thing. You submit that to USCIS along with like a $20,000 fee. And then after several years, because the, this category has become so backlogged and USCIS has become inundated with these applications for regional centers because it's become so popular. And so now you wait a couple of years before you can even get the license. Uh, so I was going to say that sounds like something great for a lot of our business owners looking to grow, but it sounds like there's a time suck hmm. that comes yeah. into it. There's an alternative. You can rent a regional center license from someone who already has it. Uh. So you don't need to apply for your own. Uh, you can rent other people's regional center licenses and work under them. But are you stuck on their business plan? Or do you have to resubmit a business plan? Or how does that work? So to be completely honest with you, I don't know. Because okay. I've never done this. I know it's possible. Yeah. But I've never done it. Okay. But I, I now with how backlogged the regional center application thing is taking, this seems to be the better approach for people. Right. This is one of those it takes money to make money. Because yeah. I imagine like there's somebody out there who 10 years ago invested you know $20,000 in having this regional license and now... It wasn't even that much. The application was like $1,000 a few years well, ago. What, it's crazy how much it went right. up over and, just a couple years. And now you've got like you know an entire, uh, an entire city in Qatar that wants to help you open up a new hotel and here's... Mm -hmm. uh, Here's $90 million of investment money, but we need your regional center thing. Yeah. And take whatever cut you want because we just want to get here ASAP. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. Um, any Anything else briefly that we've got to go over that we, that we missed to let people know about? I think we hit all the major visas. 
um, the big categories. Uh, there's the family-based stuff. I don't know if you want to talk about that. It's pretty common sense. If you have certain family members that are U.S. Yeah. citizens, they can apply for you. Yeah, I mean, that's for our listeners, I'm looking at more from that business perspective. Yeah. So the growing a business, bringing on new employees, you know, especially the key employees. Yeah, uh, I'd say it's everything is a case-by-case basis. So right. it depends on, as the business owner, what kind of business you operate, what are your plans for growth, why do you need a foreign employee, and then, you know, if, if we see that there is indeed a need, then we will create that job and Okay. try to find someone to fill it. All right. So then let's uh, not make people have to scroll back to get your info. So now they've listened to this. We've got that business owner who knows they want, you know, some extra help. Or we've got somebody who wants to, you know, invest more and switch over to a, a more permanent residency here. What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah. So email or phone uh, office number is 407-710-0101. And email address is yaz, Y-A-Z, at abdinlaw, A-B-D-I-N-L-A-W.com. All right. So uh, now that we've gone on this, I think it's going to be about our 42nd episode, Mark? Something like that, yeah. Something like that. All right. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. I didn't but, know you guys had done that many. Yeah, one. Congrats! At least one a week for a uh, almost a full year. It's a big deal. Yeah. Um, so what we've had recently, we've had some business owners or listeners reach out to us with a specific need. We had some people reach out to us about you know um, being interested in walking them through the process of how mergers and acquisitions happen. And so we had somebody come on and talk about a merger that they had. So if you're listening to this, rather than me asking you for reviews now that we've kind of got to a good number, obviously leave us a review if you want, especially for our wonderful guests like Yaz. Um, But if you have a specific question, need, situation that you're interested in, please shoot me an email. My email is J-O-R-D-A-N at JordanLawFL.com. That's FL is in Florida. So Jordan at JordanLawFL.com. And if we can't answer it internally... We will get somebody on who's an expert in it or in that situation, somebody who's like literally had just gone through the process and kind of walked everybody through that first, you know, six to eight month jump on what to expect when merging. All right. So with that being said, we're going to end this the same way we end all of these. If somebody's listened to this for the last 35 minutes and remembers absolutely nothing that they talked about except this one thing, what is that one piece of advice you want as many business owners as possible to know? Uh, be careful. Don't get yourself in trouble hiring uh, illegal employees. Make sure you do things the right way so that you don't end up getting fined and possibly having your business shut down. All right. So go about it the right way, even though it might take a little bit more time. It might, might cost, cost a little, a little bit more money, money, but exactly. it's better in the long run. Yeah, always. All right. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to... Let's get up to business from Jordan Law. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast and would consider sharing the show. We would also love an honest five-star review through iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcatcher you use. If you are interested in being a guest of the podcast, please contact producer Mark through email at mark at jordanlawfl.com. Use the subject line, podcast guest, in your email. Thank you. We look forward to speaking to you again soon.